Coming to you from the Sunshine State, this is Create Brand Envy, a podcast dedicated to entrepreneurs and business owners discussing businesses, marketing, leadership, and best practices in this ever-changing business landscape. Every week, we'll introduce you to a different business leader that has taken their company to new heights despite the odds. Learn, engage, and thrive. This is Create Brand Envy. And now your host, President and CEO of Brand Envy, Nicole Alisea. Mind-blowing and inspiring are the two words that come to mind to describe my conversation with Tim Moore, the founder of Diamond View Studios and View Technologies. Tim started from humble beginnings to disrupting the video production industry with true-to-life LED virtual production studios with locations in Tampa, Nashville, and Las Vegas. In this episode, Tim shares his own hero's journey as he built two video production companies with his partner, John. Learn why it's so important to give first before expecting to get. The importance of seeking the guidance of mentors and what he feels were the keys that have led to the success of his video production companies. We discuss virtual environments, simulation, virtually co-creating together without the use of language, content at the speed of thought, feeling and seeing the ideas of others in real time, your reality getting jealous of your vision, and other mind-bending concepts of the future. Stay with me. But first, I'd like to share some thoughts on kind leadership. Often in meetings with team members, I hear stories of horrible old bosses or horrible coworkers. I have had a few horror stories of my own to share. Why were those bosses or peers mean to us? Maybe they were punitive or unfair to us when we spoke up. Maybe they were inhumane about our humane needs or personal challenges. Can you think of a coworker, boss, or leader that was particularly unkind and unfair to you? I consistently tell my team to behave like the leaders they wish they had, to be respectful, to be kind, to be compassionate and understanding. When we communicate with others in collaborative situations, we are all leaders at all levels of the organization. And I like to remind everyone that they are in a leadership position. Your behavior affects others, hopefully in a positive way. Always speak and write to others the way you would like someone to speak to you. Be as patient, kind, and understanding as you would like someone to be to you. We are all human and we are all doing our best. Instead of focusing on the few things that someone does quote unquote wrong, why not focus on the majority of things that they do very well that enhance your life and let them know how much you appreciate them? I promise you'll sleep better, feel better, work better if you always choose to be kind. Now on to today's interview. My guest today, I'm so excited uh, to have you here. I genuinely admire you. Tim Moore, he's a three-time Emmy award-winning director and the founder of Diamond View. That's a creative video agency headquartered right here in uh, Tampa, Florida. Um, And in 2021, Tim co-founded View Technologies. That's a technology provider for the virtual production industry and North America's fastest growing network of virtual studios. 
Um, so it's a little bit of an innovative concept and that's what I really want to that, that's, that was the thing that made me go, wow, you know, not only did you create a successful video production company, which that by itself was a huge accomplishment, but then you created something innovative inside of the space. And that's why I'm like, so thrilled to have you here. When I uh, first started kind of looking into you and asking myself, would I want to talk to this person? <laughs> um, one of the things I noticed that you were the author of a book called Sold on Purpose. And I thought, all right, so let me just download the book check it out, see what he has to think, see what he has to say, see if I think this guy's legit. I do the audio book. Uh, that's like my preference. And um, when I first started listening, I was like, I was, I was excited because I'm actually writing a book too that has taken forever to come out because um, as you know, writing books take a lot of dedicated time for you to sit down and concentrate. But I was really thrilled because I was like, this is exactly what I'm explaining in my book. And then another part of me was like, I should just stop writing the book because he's already saying a lot of this stuff. <laughs> but then I said, no, no, I think everybody, it's it's good to know that I'm like right on with my concepts. But I think that um, the the different ways that we each say it, I think touches and reaches different audiences. And that's like a point that you also make in the book that I would love to talk to you about today about how to do effective storytelling. And you're also, which was also like a really like, oh, that's super awesome. You also founded um, an organization called Tampa Foundation, and that's a 501c3 nonprofit focused on inspiring communities through positive public messaging. And you do that primarily through... Um, I guess wall painting, mural painting is what it's called. Is there anything else about your accomplishments or something that I didn't cover? No, I think that's a good description of you. So I listened in your book and you, you start out by describing how your mission in the Dominican Republic really made you realize that video production was your passion. Can you help my listeners kind of catch up to that story? Yeah. Well, about 20 years ago, I got into the video production business on accident yeah, I was um, at a church here in Tampa and uh, I got voluntold. Essentially, I was going on this trip. You know, it, it looked like a vacation on the outside. And I realized uh, it was a missions trip as I was at the airport and everyone was bringing on medical supplies and clothing. And so, um, you know, uh, it was an interesting start to the career because I had never really done video at all before. And so I'm getting handed this VHS camera in the airport and I'm um, told I'm going to be the video guy on the trip. Um, you know, not knowing at all that 20 years from now, this is going to be, you know, my life during that trip. The thing that really, um, stood out to me is that, you know, I'm, I'm in the Dominican Republic getting a third world education on how to shoot video. And we go to a really rural part in the borderland right next to Haiti and the Dominican. And I get to see people in a condition I've never seen before, you know, something that, um, you would never, even on national geographic see is people, you know, drinking out of the mud on the side of the street and living in um, huts that they had uh, taken garbage from the dump to make. And I thought, man, this is a completely different world. And it felt, you know, very real for me at that moment to see that um, outside of America, there's a whole another big world out here. And when I came back to the States and, and edited the video for the first time, one thing I found that was really powerful was that I felt that same feeling when I would watch it back. And, um, I think any creator has this feeling, you know, when they take the photo, but then they, they print it out and they, they can, uh, relive that, that memory again. But in moving picture, it's something 
to put a, the music that supports that feeling and to get the timing right on how the shots cut and just to see in the eyes of these people the condition they lived. Um, I realized not only did I feel it, but the people I showed it to felt it. And mm-hmm. I had presented this in church and it was, um, it was a pretty large congregation. They had a big screen, big projector screen and sound system. And when it played, I was sitting in the back of the church thinking, man, this is, I'm going to get like an Oscar award for this thing. <laughs> and so I, uh, I was waiting for everyone to, uh, you know, stand up and applaud. And when the video ended, nobody even reacted. And I thought, wow, this is, uh, you know, I, I guess they didn't feel it either, but as the lights turned up, I realized people were actually crying yeah. and I thought, wow, this is, this is really impactful. And the, the counselor from the church came over and said, Hey, we're going to pass around a bucket and anything that you can give, um, to help these people would really appreciate it. And I saw people, you know, take money out of their wallet and give it to people they'd never met in a country that they'd never been to for a cause that two minutes ago, prior to that video, no one even knew about. And so in the back of that sanctuary, I thought, man, this is the kind of advertising I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that's not just selling a product, but, you know, is for a purpose. And so that was really the impetus behind Sold on Purpose is that, you know, the the advertising world has so much um, potential because the stories we tell today shape the world that we live in tomorrow. The impact you can have through a video is like no others. And so, um, you know, I started my career on that basis and, and then fortunately, about 15 years later, I was able to write that book and, and now started uh, the second business, View Technologies. When you were kind of growing up or before that mission trip, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, I've always been an inventor. I love building things. And so I think I had that entrepreneurial nature in me, but I, I never thought of growing, um, you know, my hobby as a business because I always looked at video as the thing I love to do, not necessarily right. the work I was going to be in. And so when I was 18, I was shooting a lot of weddings. That's where the name Diamond View originally came from is, you know, I was, would shoot these oh. uh, engagement films. And <laughs> and so it, um, you know, just naturally progressed. I, I didn't have a camera for the first year. I couldn't afford it. It was back then when, you know, tape-based cameras were eight, $9,000 for professional cameras. So my um, girlfriend, after about a year uh, on Christmas, bought me my first camera and that was when the business took off because, you know, once you have the tool you need to do your art every day, not only can you be shooting when people hire you, but you can shoot all the time. And so that was another big step in my career is, you know, um, I ended up uh, marrying her and we have two kids now. So that was a life-changing event for me again. To be given a camera and to be able to go out and do job. So you started out doing engagement um, and uh, wedding videography. How did you transition? How did you grow the business? How did you transition into commercial work? How did you balance look, you know, getting new business, uh, producing the work? Cause, uh, I think for every business owner, especially if you're kind of at that solopreneur stage, that is a very difficult step to mm-hmm. make where you're always stuck between, you know, doing some admin operational stuff, uh, new business development, but then also trying to, you know, bake the cake and you know, mm-hmm. film the, you know, and, and I know from, we do a little, some video work, the, the shooting is, is a lot of work, but it's, it's a, a very small portion. The, the real work happens with editing and that can be very time consuming. How did you, how did you transition from solopreneur to like building diamond view, which mm-hmm. now you guys produce really heavy duty 
I mean, that, that's where you won like your, your Emmy awards and everything. So, yeah, you know, I, I found out early on that, um, if you're going to grow something special, you got to seek the extremes, not the balance. Cause there is no balance in growing a business, you know? And, um, so if you're looking for that work life balance, entrepreneurship is not the, not the game to play. It's, it's challenging. You have to wear a lot of hats at the same time. You have to simultaneously manage as you grow, as you learn. And so you're applying, not only knowledge that, you know, you've experienced through good or bad on, on, um, you know, learning how to run a business, but then you have to, you have to learn things rapidly and apply them. So if you're, you know, a solopreneur, you have to understand accounting, you have to understand, um, you know, how to do invoicing, how to do all of those things. And coming from a more freelance world, um, I started to realize that as I scaled, you know, I didn't have a lot of that infrastructure understanding to make it a, five person, 10 person business, 20 person. And so I was constantly looking for mentors that had done it before me. And that was kind of how I formally got educated in running a business is I would go gravitate towards people who had done it really well. And what if, if it was a, a auto dealer, like um, Rob Elder was a big mentor for me early on. Um, he has Elder Ford and uh, Jaguar of Tampa. And, and he was just someone that uh, even when I didn't have an office, I worked out of his conference room. And I got to see the decisions he was making and how he was running his business. And that was, that was really big. And then Jeff Gigante is a restaurateur here in, in Tampa. Um, he took me under his wing and for about a year, I was learning a lot about how he was growing their franchise of restaurants. So before I knew it, you know, I had become informally educated on a lot of the soft skills for running a business. And I, I think that that's something that for anyone who's listened to understand it's not necessarily what you'll find in the textbook that'll be important in the situational parts of growing the business, because those are all, um, by feel and instinct is like, all right, how do you know when to add another person? How do you know when to take a job or say no? And, and I think that's something that if you can leverage the experience of others, it's really helpful. This isn't the first time I've heard I've had mentors and I've had mentors. Um, I, I'm just remembering of a friend, Brenda, who the first time I, I told her, oh, I have a mentor. She said, mentor? How do you get a mentor? Like, what is this mentor meant? I keep hearing about mentor. Where do you go find a mentor? So how did you get, uh, you know, elder Ford? And mm. I mean, you're naming these like big deal people. How did you, how did you get them to be your mentors? How did you well, develop that relationship? It's, it's very much like going out and getting a sale. I mean, success leaves clues. You look at what you want to emulate and then you, you decide, all right, Will they take me in and and uh, you know bring me under their wing? And what I found is, um, you know, this negotiation tactic in sales called give to get, and that is that before you even ask something from the prospect, you give them something. And so in many of these cases, I was doing videos for free, and that became you know the leverage to say, hey, you know, um, hopefully you got value out of this. Is there anything that we could do together so I could learn more about business? And that that became to me a lot of the way I got new customers, you know, in the video world, it's a portfolio based business. People want to see that you've done something like them in the past. And so that's challenging when you're breaking into a new industry, because who's going to give you your first sports commercial, you know, yes. what professional team is going to put their name on the line to, to have you um, learn on their behalf. But if you can go to high school or a university that has a sports team and do a really good job pro bono for them, now you're starting a reel. Now maybe right. the next one you can get paid a little bit for. Now maybe after that you can approach a professional team. So I, I found that uh, whether it's finding a mentor, getting a sale, whatever you're doing in life, if you can first give, 
the probability of getting what you want is so much higher afterwards. That's beautiful. And that requires a degree of humbleness. You have to be humble to say, Hey, um, you know, how can I, how can I improve? Can you teach me more about business? You know, so you kind of have to leave your pride aside. Uh, so in order to grow. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's really, um, insightful and helpful. Thank you for sharing that. How do you pursue business? Uh, did, did you respond to RFPs? Did you call people and just say, Hey, I just want to let you know we're a production studio. How did you do that? What well, was your new business strategy? In the beginning, nobody knows who you are. So you got to knock on a lot of doors. And so I think in the first year or two, you know, success of a startup is getting a lot of doors slammed in your face and never losing the enthusiasm to keep knocking, you know? And so I would do that a lot. You know, I would just literally show up and say, Hey, is there something I can do for you guys? And even, uh, probably the most challenging is when you're trying to give something for free and people don't accept that. And then right. it like makes you kind of question your work or value. But, you know, eventually finding those cracks in the doors it really is is how I've got into almost any industry that we've been able to to work for. And you know what I do is I ask for the thing that most people won't. So when I'm approaching a new client, I say, hey, do you have a project that's low budget, quick turnaround, you don't want to do it? Like, can we start there? Because I find that if you help someone with that, everyone wants the national Super Bowl spot. Mm -hmm. But what about the one that they got on their plate that you know no one's able, they don't have the budget to hire someone for? If you knock that out of the park, you've gained trust. And so mm -hmm. I find that getting in is as much about giving to someone, but also helping them in the area of need that, um, that really gives you a lot of leverage moving forward. But how did you go about actively pursuing new business? So, um, one of the things I found in the video production world is that, uh, nonprofits were always looking for, you know, films and they, they rarely had a budget to do them, but they had the best stories. Mm -hmm. And so it really fit well with, you know, my background, what I, you know, learned growing up in the church. And so what would happen is I would make this really compelling story for the big brothers or YMCA, any kind of nonprofit, and they would show it at these banquets. Mm -hmm. And the serendipity was the people that attended these were very affluent. They were yes. they were the community leaders, and um, you know they're having a good time drinking. They watch this uh, you know short film that I'm making, and um, inevitably after all of these things, they say, "Hey, who made that? Okay. You know, that I, I want to use them for our commercial or to help us out." And so I got a lot of business first going through the nonprofit world and and making connections there. So let me ask you this like weird detailed question. Um, so at the end of the video, would you show like this was pr produced by Diamond View Studios? Yeah, well, a lot of times then, um, you know, because I was helping out the the foundation, they would say that over the mic, say, hey, you know what, Diamond View helped us with this. Um, and, you know, it led to really big work. One of the biggest jobs we ever had was uh, we were helping out an award show and um, we did the videos for the awards and the uh, event planner was also working with Bright House Networks mm -hmm. and they um, they brought me in and it was actually, uh, it was interesting because they uh, told me to meet him over at the headquarters and I had no clue, I was you know, 21 years old. I walk into the board of their executives and they were like, hey, we heard that, um, uh, you guys did this event the other night um, and it was for the award show. And and they were under the impression that we did the entire event, like the production for the event, the lighting, the sound. Oh. And they were like, we have a huge job coming up in two months at the convention <laughs> center with 2,000 people. Would you be willing to do that? And I sat there for a second. I was like, well, I've never produced an event before. 
but this opportunity is probably never going to present itself again. And so I said, yeah, we could do that. And we took it on and it ended up being their best event they had run. We did it for three years straight after that. It was a huge deal for us. And what I found is like, that's one of those moments where sometimes you're going to get offered things that you're not sure if you can do them or if it's even in your league. But if you have the right partners in the network, you know, there's nothing that's impossible. You're so connected nowadays with technology Mm -hmm. that um, we were able to get a good group of people to help us out and pull off this event. Mm -hmm. And that was really another, I would say that was probably the third biggest catalyst of my career was uh, Bright House and, and where that led to even today because the person who had hired me for the event is now our chairman at View Technologies. Oh, wow. So how did you go out, go about pricing that first big break event? Mm-hmm. Did they give you a budget or did they say, just tell us what it's no, going to cost? it's always and... guesswork. Yeah, it's always Yeah, because you have no clue from the scope what it's going to yeah. be, you know. So I, I find that's probably the most challenging thing in the creative industry is what is this worth? It's so subjective. It's like, hey, the... If you look at the raw value, yeah, this, the equipment costs X amount and the people may cost X amount. But then there's this other value underneath is like, what is that art able to do? Right. You know, how does that, um, you know, transform into value for the end customer? So uh, I think that was more of a guess in game. <clears throat> we probably charged a little low, honestly, <laughs> once we realized um, that this is a, uh, you know, Fortune 500 enterprise that three years later, they got sold for $9 billion to charter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, um, but you know, for us, it was, it was a good deal. Yeah. It was a huge stepping stone. Mm-hmm. So did, I mean, in retrospect, did you go negative on that job or did oh, you no. act, were you actually no, I mean, it was, profitable? It was, so you, you're able to like, so what did you do with like that? Pro- so a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll get that nice big break in business. And so you'll have like the surplus of money and you kind of don't know what to do with it. You know, do I invest it? Do I just hang on to it for the next time things are kind of slim? What did you, how did you approach that? Well, I mean, my philosophy is I always just double down until I hit the vision. So, you know, for me, I was at that time, we had 10, 15 people. We knew that we wanted to grow into a bigger company, do bigger things. And so that provided a lot of runway for it. And, you know, you get two kind of jobs in the creative world. One for the real, which is the thing that you'll show everybody. It'll be nice and shiny. And then one for the meal, which is like, all right, I'm doing this. This might be some like uh, medical infomercial that's not going to go on my portfolio. (laughs) But you know what? That's going to help pay for the people around the table. That's right. And so, you know, that was one of those that, hey, we're not really interested in getting in the event business, but this is such a um, pivotal contract for us. We're going to be able to hire 10 more people. So after that you know, we were about 25 people strong in the agency and it's, um, it set us up for success moving forward. Diamond View Studios. Explain how it's structured today. It doesn't sound to me like you're actively running it, right? Yeah. So Diamond View, um, we we were real fortunate that over the years we've had a a lot of our team move up in the leadership. And so um, uh, our president is Jeff McCallan. He came on about five years ago. He's got a lot of experience in the industry and now he's been running the ship for about two years um, now that John and I have moved on to View Technologies. But I'm, I, I'm still um, active in the company, not as active as I used to be. Uh, but the um, Aaron Calero, who's our vice president, again, she's uh, someone who's, who was previously our, our chief of staff, and she's um, kind of uh, been able to lead the company in a whole new, more organized direction than we ever were before. So those two are, are at the helm of Diamond View. And then a lot of the team that we've developed over the years have stepped up to leadership positions as well. A lot of times 
like what you, what you've done in my opinion is the dream of every entrepreneur to start a company, build it from the ground up. And then basically it just kind of runs itself. Can you share some insights, uh, some tips, best practices? I think I know a lot of people struggle with control, letting people do their own thing, recruiting, hiring the right pe people. What best practices can you share to help others get to where you are, which is like the dream? Well, I, you know, there's, there's two perspectives to that. One is you know, I'd loved uh, being involved in the creative process of making the video. And so in some ways, you know, I look at now that I'm more focused on view technologies that I, I miss that in, in many ways. But the, the other part of it is, you know, I'm really proud that we have the systems and process now that it can run on its own and it's, it's achieving things that we'd never achieved before. So, um, you know, I think the trick to growing a business to the point that it can run itself is that it has to, at some point, have the right systems and processes in place and certainly the people and leadership um, to be able to sustain without you. And, uh, you know, sometimes the best way to figure out if you have that or not is to step away because you can see if it if it goes in the right direction after, you know, your presence isn't there. And, and certainly for me and John, we found that out really quickly that, hey, this is a business that um, is going to do really well, you know, as we, we focus on other things. Who's John? So John is my business partner in View Technologies. He's been a friend for since the seventh grade when uh, he moved here to Tampa and I moved as well. And so until you two have built the the company together. Yep. So he start you started out with a partner. Do you think that that's um, I mean, how helpful has he been in terms of of part having a partner versus kind of going solo? Well, you know, John's been incredible. If when I go back through, the career of Diamond View, we were um, roommates at the time. And so I started Diamond View essentially at, out of my parents' bedroom. And then I moved out for college and me and John moved, uh, John moved in. And so uh, by about year three, John was getting ready to go to medical school and uh, he joined Diamond View and, and essentially it was us to verse the world, you know, we were like, all right, we're going to grow this thing together. Yeah. And uh, so he's been uh, a huge part of that journey growing Diamond View. And then when uh, uh, View Technologies came out, it was like, all right, we were kind of split between the two. He was running Diamond View and I was running View. And um, we got to the point that like View was growing so much faster mm -hmm. than we ever expected that he came on board at, at View Technologies and we said the same thing again. It's like, hey, it's us two versus the world. We're going to grow this uh, just the same as, as we did before. How did View start? Uh, describe View. So... Um, in February of 2020, we were having our best year ever for Diamond View. And uh, we had just done the um, Super Bowl down in Miami. And we were on track to have just, you know, an amazing year. And when the pandemic hit, uh, we realized that all of our clients were out of the market. You know, we were doing very little for companies here in Tampa. Most of them were in Atlanta, New York, Chicago. And so when we couldn't travel, it was devastating. You know, we had an office in Atlanta and it was doing um, about 160 videos a year for the Atlanta Braves. The stadium was shut down. Uh, you know, we were doing a lot in tourism and, um, you know, tourism shut down. And then we were doing a lot in medical and medical for the most part, unless you had COVID, you weren't even allowed in a hospital. So the, the impetus for view was that we started playing around with virtual technologies of if we can't travel to the location, how do we bring the location to us? And um, by using the LED screen and, and Unreal Engine, we realized, wow, we can really make this believable. 
Um, oh, wait, Unreal Engine? Yeah, Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine. So it's a game engine. They're uh, behind the, the hit game Fortnite. Okay. And the, they do photorealistic images straight out of this engine. So you can create virtual worlds that do the eye of the camera look look like you're actually there. So from a visual effects standpoint, this is a huge breakthrough that we had never seen before. And this all happened in the last couple of years. Um, but for, for Diamond View transitioning into this, this new company, you know, we had our um, lead director of photography, Alvin. He got really good at putting all this stuff together and making it work. And so, uh, you know, view was really built out of diamond view during the pandemic of not being able to go out and shoot the way we, right. we were before. And, and once it launched, like I was saying, it's, it was a matter of months before we realized, wow, this, um, this studio that we've built is actually outperforming the business that we've been building for 15 years. Yeah. Just so that people who are listening understand, I, I've seen enough videos where I, I know what it is, but it's basically you guys have this studio stage set type thing. And then in the back, it's a giant LED screen mm -hmm. where you can basically play whatever background you want. And that translates into you being able to shoot somebody like they're walking on the moon or like they're walking in the desert. Um, you've had recording artists in there. I've seen, I've seen some work with... Um, Tom Cruise, Nicolas Cage. I think I read a press release saying that, you know, Nicolas Cage walked in and said, oh, this is really nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what other, like, what, what are you guys doing in there? And you guys now just open like a location in, in Las Vegas and you guys are, are building out or you've already built out like in the old university mall. Yep. So our uh, first studio was here in Tampa at the university mall and we took over essentially an old, uh, you know, fabric store, you know, that was the, the prototype studio. And, um, since then we've, uh, built a studio in Las Vegas and Nashville and Orlando as well. And, um, it's just been a business that's under high demand right now, because when you think about the alternative mm -hmm. to this type of technology, uh, the way we've been doing it for yeah 50 yeah. years, you either travel location or you shoot it on green screen yeah. and neither of those are ideal. So to be able to have a real time visual on a large format LED screen and then to the eye of the camera, it looks like you're there so much easier shooting on the beach in the studio than it is yes. on the actual beach. So is this innovative technology that you guys came up with? Um, this actually was created in the feature film world. You know, Mandalorian was kind of the ones that uh, that pioneered this out of ILM and Disney. And, and then we saw an opportunity to take it to the commercial market where we could do it for automotive and a number of other industries. So that was kind of how we applied the technology in a new space you learned about what they did and then you guys said, let's do it ourselves. Yep, exactly. And was there any, I mean, obviously not, but like, I guess, uh, so I guess the pioneers were the man, you know, uh, I guess Disney, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, I guess if I were, if I were to go down that path, one of my thoughts would be, I'm sure Disney has a protection or some kind of a trademark or copyright that you can't duplicate that technology, but that's well, not the case. Yeah. If you look at it, what this is, it's just the intersection of several different industries. So, you know, the LED has been used for years in concerts and live events. And so we use a very similar processing that's done in that space. The uh, camera tracking, which is needed to make the whole effect work, that's been done um, in motion capture and animation for years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the content, which is made in Unreal Engine, has been developed for games for you know 20 years now. So what what it's 
what happened is during the pandemic, a lot of these areas that, uh, you know, couldn't work, the, you know, the com concerts were basically dead. All of those industries started to merge together. And so what we found is that, you know, there's not any kind of protection on the workflow of this. It's just having several technologies working in sync to pull off this effect. Now, so now you've come up with this new tech that has this, you know, you're like, man, this is amazing. How did you promote it? How did you convince other people to start using it? How did, how did you push this forward? Well, you know, the challenging thing with any new technology is adoption. It's like, all right, now we have a new way of doing things that's scary for most of the population, especially, you know, with something like this, that's, it's a high price tag to get into the studio and record. And so the, um, the way that we were able to build demand for it was just show what it could do. And one of the industries that was the easiest to get into was automotive because a car is like a mirror in every direction. So when you shoot it on green screen, it's very challenging to solve for all the contours and the transparency between the glass and then the reflections that are coming camera side. So what we realized was with the LED volume, the best way to think about it is it's all the technologies of a, a virtual reality headset, but at the scale of an IMAX theater. And so whichever way the camera turns, it's changing that perspective in 3D, just like a VR headset would. Wow. So when the the camera's moving around the car, all of the reflections in real time are exactly how they should be on the car, on every inch of the car. Wow. The, this would take weeks and weeks to solve for seconds, um, but now we're doing it immediately. So that benefit was very obvious to the automotive world. For other industries, it wasn't as obvious since we had to build a portfolio for those and show use cases and really um, kind of help those industries get into it. But, uh, but I would say like, you know, the leading pin was, was automotive for us. And that was, that really helped us kind of grow the, um, the whole business model. This is literally a, a disruptive innovation. I, I'm, I don't know if you've heard of the, of the term disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. A lot of people struggle with what it is, but you're describing it to a T. So this is something that would have cost a ton of money to do before. And, and now you're doing it at a lower cost, uh, even higher quality mm -hmm. by integrating technology into it. That's amazing. Very, very impressive. All right. So you started with the automotive and then not, how did you go from like doing it with the automotive to like booking recording artists and, you know, doing... Super Bowl ads in it. How how did you jump? Well, you know, because we had such a big first mover advantage, we were the fourth real permanent studio in the world. A lot of these have been built and then taken down. And so um, by telling the market we were here to stay, we not only built a portfolio a lot faster than some of the other companies, but um, we were one of the only options. And so um, as we grew, we had this kind of snowball effect of, all right, if we get uh, one, you know, we had, um, 21 pilots and then we got Carrie Underwood and then we started getting bigger artists and we realized, Oh, you know what? Every time we get one artist, we now get two artists. And every time we get two, we get four. Every time we get four. Friends. Yeah. It's all, it's like exponential growth. And so I, I saw that early in my career with weddings is I would shoot a wedding and then there were six bridesmaids and then I would end up shooting two of their weddings. And then there would be, uh, you know, uh, more bridesmaids from those. So it. it's kind of like just being in the right place at the right time, knowing you're there and, and going for it. Cause the, the first mover advantage is such is one you can only get by speed. Do you have competitors? Yeah, we do. But you know, what's interesting about a new 
emerging market is none of the competing studios um, are going against each other. We're all trying to build a new market. So we're competing against the traditional way of doing things. You know, we're competing against going on location, competing against green screen uh, for each other. We're glad when the other one gets work. You know, we want right. to build demand. You're promoting that. Yes. And you guys are helping each other. I'm sure calling each yeah. other when you have questions, sharing resources. That's great that there's enough to go around where you don't have to be, you know, kind of that closed off competitiveness. You can be strategic partners. Yeah, we have a whole community of stage owners that talk to each other regularly and we kind of feel how the market's moving. And so that's, you know, so different than the way of normally doing business where people are closed doors, they yes. keep their secrets to themselves. Yes. You know, so I really like that collaborative nature of yeah. the industry that, hey, we're, we're all artists in this, trying to bring this technology forward. And I think that's a, a new culture of our generation. Um, I have no idea how old you are, but I know like um, in, in my brain or at least in my career as an agency, like I've, I've ended up forming strategic partnerships with other agencies uh, just because every, every business has like its pros and its cons. And it's like, you know, maybe an agency doesn't want certain business that I'm happy to take. And maybe there's, business that I don't, I really don't want to deal with that that other agency loves. And so they're used to, I do remember younger being younger growing up. And it used to be, like you said, dog eat dog world kind of closed off. And now we're a lot more open, more collaborative and more like more of an abundant mindset. You know, there's really enough to go around. So that's, that is good. Mm -hmm. we, we do need each other to grow. What do you think is next in your industry? I know you, you, you made a post recently on LinkedIn about, um, artificial intelligence mm -hmm. and, um, we know that's like the great disruptor now for our industry. Tell us a little bit about artificial intelligence and your prediction for the future. Yeah, well, I think that if you look at the arc of technology, the, everything becomes faster. Over time, everything becomes faster. And so what we've done with virtual production is just made a process uh, faster and uh, more creative capability. And so when we look at what the opportunity there is for AI, um, I think it's going to help more people participate in the creative process because before you had to be an artist that understood a, a particular skill set, knew how to use a certain software. Mm -hmm. Now in a single prompt, you can get back exactly what you're visioning. And so I think there's going to be this whole generation of visioneers who understand, you know, uh, the technology is going to take care of the making. All they have to do is the thinking. Mm -hmm. And when you, when you give a society uh, a meritocracy like that, mm -hmm. where, you know, in a meritocracy, uh, the best things fall up, you know, gravity's different. So, you know, someone who, regardless of what privileged background they come from or who they know, if they have amazing ideas and they're able to leverage technology to get those ideas seen, you know, they will move to the top. And so this is what AI I think will do is democratize the thinkers of our generation to be seen and and for those great thoughts to be recognized. So I, I'm excited for it. I know a lot of people think that it's dangerous, that it'll take away jobs. And you know, I my position on that is when you're born in America, you know, you're taught the occupation theory that you are what you do, that your value is in what you can create. And it's this is reinforced, especially if you're institutionalized in the the school system, because every week you're taking a test, mm -hmm. you're, uh, you know, given positive reinforcement. If you do good, if you don't do your homework, you know, you're reprimanded. So you know, we're, we're grown up to be taught that um, how we contribute to society is through our work. And the harder you work, 
the more things you can get or the more success you'll attain. But this really changes the paradigm because with AI, it's about working smarter, not harder. So using and leveraging tools to get to that output faster, to, to be able to share in a, a bigger and greater way, like this is what AI is going to do for us. And so I'm excited about the potential, um, but also understand too why so, people are so many people are hesitant of this big disruption. I, I, I followed your post and I wanted to like you recommended or you you mentioned like a company. Uh, what was the name of the company that you mentioned? That you well, were able Chat to? GPT is, is probably the most popular one right now. But um, uh, I use MidJourney for a lot of the prompt to image, um, text to image generators. And, you know, there's every day there's new AI generators coming out. Dolly 2 is one that's been around. That's great. Um, but uh, I would say that like in the next five um, six months, we're going to see the amount of AI tools double, if not triple from where they're at today. All technology, all data, you know, junk in, junk out, um, you know, technology that enables us to create things or do things will constantly evolve. But the, the, the basic core of understanding how to, you know, storytelling, you know, but you, I think you mentioned in the book, something about the campfire. I I've, I've said that, uh, you know, you know, many times before that, you know, stories, you know, we, for eons, we've been sitting around sharing stories. That's so natural to our being human. That's how we learn. That's how we share. And, and, um, uh, in your book, uh, I was on a flight when I was hearing this and I took some notes in your book sold on purpose. Um, you describe, uh, the anatomy of a good story and I tried understanding it and, you know, and I thought about it and then I was like, I think I should, I'm going to let him explain it. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, there's a lot of thoughts on this. One, one of the common archetypes is the hero's journey. And that is that, um, you know, this character goes through a struggle and because of that, they take a call to action. They say, hey, I'm going to change the way the world is or my predicament. And by doing that, um, you know, they're, they're really called to a journey that the audience takes with them. And, uh, and a lot of times they go through conflict, they have to overcome something great. But um, in, in almost every hero's journey, what happens is they meet a mentor that gives them a gift. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in Luke Skywalker, you can see like Moses in the Bible, you know, there's, there's a particular thing that they're given that allows them to have this heroic outcome. And by taking that um, that gift from the mentor and applying it, you know they're able to change their circumstance, change the world. And so, what what I found is that story um, is told often in books, but it's not reinforced in the society we see. So when we begin to tell that story, that hey, you know people need help, and then from the help you're given, you can give that, pass it forward to others. You can change your circumstance. Um, when you reinforce that idea over and over again, it changes society in a much more positive direction. And so that was part of what I was describing and told on purpose is that if you look at advertising, I mean, when I got into this business, I didn't get into it because I loved advertising. I wanted to change it. You know, for a hundred years, we've um, kind of uh, rebranded the American dream to life, liberty, and the purchase of happiness right. that you could uh, you know, buy your way to satisfaction. We know that's not true because this is the wealthiest country in the world and we have the highest rate of depression. Mm -hmm. uh, the suicide rate continues to increase yeah. year after year. Yeah. If you could buy everything you want, why are we the wealthiest people and the loneliest at the same time? Mm -hmm. And I've, it's interesting because I meet people 
that are um, millionaires, mm-hmm. but they're broke. All they have is money. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you ask yourself, all right, if that is um, not true, what's being shown on every commercial break that, hey, buy this product, you'll feel this way or, or do this thing and, and you'll get happiness, then what is the advertising we should be doing? And I think that's uh, really the, the impetus to the book was that there, the purpose story is, hey, you are so valuable as you are, but the gift that you give to society, what you can contribute back is much more important than what you consume. You know, and uh, in the same way that, you know, I need to uh, eat every day to stay alive. You know, the purpose of my life isn't to eat everything I can. Mm-hmm. The same thing with business. You you need to make a profit to stay in business, but the purpose of business isn't to make all the money you can. You now have an organization that you can give back tenfold than you could as an individual. If every business out there gave more than they took, this would be a completely different world than we have today. And so that's, that's kind of the heart of what I hope people hear out of this, that, you know, the purpose that business has is to give that gift back, to be that mentor in that story. You know, all the heroes that are along their journey, they're looking for that gift um, to, help, to help change the world today. What does the future look like for View Studios? Well, today we're a network of virtual production studios. And essentially what that means is while others are shooting on location or on green screen, we're shooting in virtual worlds. And when people talk about, you know, um, a metaverse or the kind of the web three, what's coming next, you know, they often talk about um, collaborating in a virtual environment. You know, we're doing that for, um, for all of our studios. And so as we look at what is the next rendition of that, we think that there is no physical location to it. It's you don't go to a studio with a screen that has a virtual environment, but that we're all co-creating virtually together. And that's something today that's challenging to understand with the, the context of technology as we have it, because it won't be a Zoom call it won't be, um, you know, webcams and the internet, but it'll be a way for us to experience life together. Uh, I think in an immersive, virtual way. Um, and the the best way I can describe it is if you look at uh, the way a VR headset works now, you have to essentially strap a computer on your face to get into this virtual world. And um, we know that's not the way people are gonna are gonna access that. Uh, having a goggleless type of experience where you walk into um, more more or less a closet that has a virtual environment on it. That is the projection we've had from science fiction films for years. Yeah. If you look at the holodeck, I mean, that was something 25 years ago that you know they went into a room and they commanded the scene or location that they wanted to be at. And they, yes. they weren't physically there, but they were able to project it and feel like it. And so I think that's really when you look at fast forward 10 years for view, we believe in the idea of content, the speed of thought, which is as soon as I think it, I can see it. But we also believe that that's a very visual type of experience that in the room we are today, I should be able to say these ideas and not just encode it into oral language and you hear it, but the room should light up with the images of the ideas that I have and you should feel that and you should see it. And so that same journey I was on 20 years ago when I was showing 
you know, the video of the Dominican on the projection screen. Yeah. I want that instantly in real time. And regardless of if you're across the chair from me or if you're in Tokyo, yeah. you should feel the ideas I have and see them and experience what? them. Why does that make me think of telepathic communication? Yeah, right. I mean, that's it's a lot more Is efficient that, than oral communication. I mean, we'll just sit here and like just, you know, just have this like experience with each other. No, when you were describing describing what you just said a second a second ago, I was like, yeah, so I guess I would be inside of, I could walk into like a closet or whatever space is designated for it. And then um, I, I sit down and then suddenly the two of you show up mm-hmm. and you would be in your closet and wherever you are and you would be wherever you are. But through technology, it would feel just like this experience of being here in this room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think more so on the, uh, not only will I sit down with you, I'm going to sit down with your ideas. And that's something that we haven't really seen as much before. That, you know, the ideas you have only come out when when you encode them into language. But to be able for you to think and me to be able to co-think, you know, that that's something that I think is going to be possible. That's uh, also, I think, kind of dangerous. Because how many times have you thought a really inappropriate joke? <laughs> or something that's really dark and you go and you have this little internal dialogue with yourself and you're like, ha ha ha, don't you dare open your mouth. I mean that I do that all the time where I'm like, shush it. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> and I'm grateful at that moment well, that people can't hear my thoughts. So what you're describing is <laughs> basically like I would basically constantly be apologizing and probably lose a lot of friends that think I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll have some good idea filters, but there, I, I think that, uh, you know, one thing that, that could be dangerous though is, you know, when you start to see your vision in real form, mm-hmm. that that's a very powerful thing. I mean, it's a dangerous idea to go on a date with your dreams because your reality might get jealous. You might just say, Hey, this thing that I see that I, that I vision, mm-hmm. I might want to do that for the rest of my life. And, yes. and I think that level of yeah. visual confidence, a lot of people don't have because they, they have something they aspire to, but they can't see it in concrete. Right. They don't know if they can actually achieve that or be that character in the play of their mind. Right. But, but the second you start to see things unfolding that you're like, I can do that. I think that's going to give a level of confidence to this generation that we've never seen before. Cause they can see themselves doing whatever they're envisioning. Yeah. That's uh, the purpose. Give, me, give me a basic example. Well, that's the purpose of all simulation is the ideas, experiences gained through practice, but in simulation, you try the future in advance. You know, you don't want to have to wait to try something because that's that's very dangerous. If I'm going to tightrope, I want to do it 100 times before I go out on the mountaintop and tightrope between mountains. So in simulation, you can you can simulate that over and over again. Now, in, in business, the concepts we discussed before, you can only achieve through your personal experience or someone else's experience. But what if you wanted to run a a production company and you wanted to simulate that? So you had, you know, six months of experience going in and thinking about that daily, uh, living out that path. But you can't have, uh, you can't do it in isolation. Well, that's what simulation can do is simulation allows you to experience social settings in isolation. You know, when you think Through about artificial the military, intelligence, so I make yeah. a decision and then the artificial intelligence creates consequences. Yeah. And it could be, um, even learning models. Like when you look at the way that the military, 
um, you know, gets fighters ready for war. They don't want to do that on the day of, you know, they want to be able to in advance simulate some of those scenarios and that scenario training makes them so much more resilient. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're discussing is scenario training for business, scenario training for life. You know, the, in the future, people will always try before they do. Now you do, you learn and then you retry. That's not going to be the way people do it. So all these college, all these, um, uh, seniors who are being pressured to decide what they want to be for the rest of their lives, they can simulate different careers. Yeah. It's like, you know, you go up to, there's a hundred flavors of ice cream. You try one out before you pick what it is. Not in, not in the common, uh, business world we live in today. It's like by your senior, you have to know what you have to do because yeah. next year is college and you have to figure out. Yeah, you have to pick a major. A major. <laughs> yeah. It'd be great to do 50 careers and simulate those. I think that's going to be possible with the technology we have. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a singer. If I still had it my way, I would be like, I mean, I I say that, but that's just kind of like my little, you know, oh, I'd love to be, you know, a singer, but I, I have an okay voice. I do voiceover and, and stuff, but I can't, I have a very limited range when it comes to singing in real life. I really wouldn't be able to do that. Like how would AI, um, I don't know what the right word is, but how, how would AI uh, kind of um, reconcile reality versus idealism? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one thing that I think it's going to be interesting is before, you know, talent you're born with, skill you acquire. So uh, acquiring a skill takes a lot of hard work. So if you're an average singer and then you work really hard, you could be a good singer, but you could just be born a great singer. And it's very hard to compete with people that just have golden pipes. They just, right. They're just born like that. And um, same thing could be said with with athletes. You know, if you're seven foot tall, right. you get a big advantage to being a basketball player. Yeah. If you're if you're, you know, five foot, that's going to be a lot harder to compete and, you, and to overcome. That's going to be challenging. But in the future, I think technology is going to fill a lot of gaps. You know, when you talk about well, how is your voice perceived to others? Um, you know, uh, with auto tune today, we know that you can correct <laughs> and make things sound better. But what if what you're hearing in the future? Um, it, it doesn't matter on the other end if it was corrected or if it was, what if that music is touching you and that artist is really based more on the merit of the the art they created and less if it's really their voice or their music. You know, I think that's today wow. when we when we strip away ownership and, and say it doesn't matter who gets the credit, what's the output, right. that that's going to be how we look at things in the future is, is this output great. When I watch a movie, one of the things that I kind of use to judge if it was a good movie or not is how long do I think about the movie for how, you know, how many days after watching the movie do I think about the plot and what happened Mm. and whatever. And you've certainly given me a lot to think about and imagine and just kind of um, you've, you've, I'm mind blown, I think is what I am in terms of like, oh, wow, the, the possibilities of AI and I mean, you have my utmost admiration. Is there any closing advice or points that you want to leave with the listener? Maybe somebody who is also doing video production um, or trying to do their own creative business to just help them think and and have the right mind frame to to be as, I don't want to say as successful as you, because I think everyone's on their own journey, but just to kind of get out of whatever stuck place they might be or something? Well, I would say embrace being uncomfortable. You know, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. But if you want to do something greater, it's going to take a stretch. I mean, when you go into the gym, the only way to build muscle is to tear it down. Mm -hmm. And so you, you may find that there is some temporary failure along growing, 
but that's just a part of the process. I mean, you're not going to get any stronger unless you, unless you tear things apart. So I, I feel like, um, that's probably the, the biggest thing I see holding people back is that, uh, fear to try something new because they don't know what's on the other side. Um, and I would just say, embrace that it's likely failure, failure, failure. And then one time out of 10, you get it right. And that's all you need to be successful. It's just, yep. you know, you can get it wrong a thousand times, but if you get it right once, yep. it could change your life. I, I remember this uh, quote, um, you miss 100% of the chance of the shots you don't take. Yep. Yep. That's totally true. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And you got to understand too, is like, you're going to pay the price somewhere along the lines, whether it's the discipline or the regret. And, you know, you live long enough and realize you might as well put in the discipline because the regret hurts. Yeah. All those shots you didn't take, you're going to be sitting in bed thinking about, I had the opportunity and I didn't do it. Right. So you might as well get up a little early, work a little harder. So all I'm hearing is be brave, go for it. Uh, Don't be afraid to work hard. You know, and and, and just as a, just a closing thought, you, um, at at the beginning, you spoke about there being no balance. Mm Mm-hmm. But then later on, you talked about people that were rich and were really poor because they had, you know, I guess no family, no friends. You didn't say it that way. But how, how would you reconcile those two in terms of because a lot of business owners that I know are putting in and I did. I, I mean, I've had my company for 13 years. I used to work. I'm talking. I mean, and I, you know, like I probably wake up to, to going to bed, like just round the clock, no bound, no, no, whatever. And then now my lifestyle is a little little bit different. I've got a team, not where you're at, but like it's, so, um, how do you reconcile those two? Or is it just kind of like, you got to put in a lot of work at the beginning and then ease up or. Well, I see that, you know, living on the extremes doesn't mean one side of the pendulum all the time that if you're going to be overcommitted and pushing as hard as you can in work, you have to take some of that time and go back and do it in your family life and do it in your relationships. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's a lot of the way that I live that I'm out on the road for months at a time. And then I come back and say, Hey, you know what? I, I just need to completely walk away from the business for a little while and, um, and pour in here. So the, the idea of being on the extremes doesn't mean that you're abandoning one side or the other, but that, uh, when you're there, you're fully there. You're a hundred percent there. And, uh, and vice versa. Thank you so much for coming out, Tim. I know you're super duper busy doing amazing things in the world. Um, I'm so grateful to have had you and to be able to peek under the hood of, of, uh, everything that you've created. And thank you for sharing all of your thoughts and ideas. And I, I will probably be thinking about like AI in the future for a couple of weeks now. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks so, so much for having me. Make sure you hit subscribe so you can be notified of new episodes where we discuss business, marketing, and peek under the hood of successful companies to understand the leadership behind the organization and best practices for today's challenges. I'm your host, Nicole Alisea, founder and president of Brand Envy, an integrated global marketing communications firm based in sunny Tampa Bay. Learn more at createbrandenvy.com. Thanks for listening to Create Brand Envy. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. Brand Envy is an integrated marketing and advertising agency that helps brands innovate while maintaining their focus and identity. To learn more or to get in touch with Nicole, visit createbrandenvy.com. That's createbrand and the letters envy.com. We'll see you next time.